Welcome to Bonnets at Dawn, the show that explores the lives and works of 18th, 19th, and 20th century women writers. I am your host, Lauren Burke. And I am your host, Hannah Chapman. And this week is finally the final, final finale of our epic Mansfield Park deep dive. Yes, it is finally here. Um, We did three awesome episodes with three amazing guests, Um, but you guys had some awesome comments that we wanted to dig into. And like, there were so many comments, can I just say? Like maybe thousands, Hannah? I don't know. We've just poured through so many threads. I feel like there were definitely a thousand comments on the Facebook group alone because each of the each of the initial book discussion discussion threads were like around the 300 mark. And then there were all mm-hmm. of the comments in response to the episodes as they were coming out. Comments to all of the articles that were being shared. Uh, I'm yeah. not on the Twitter. You're on the Twitter. So <laughs> yeah. your Twitter was blowing up. It was, yeah, it's been like a really unexpected response to the book because I think we were both a little you know yeah yeah, I was was not sure like if people were going to come out for Mansfield Park honestly it's not Austin's most popular work right no it's not and I just it's opened my eyes yeah mine too and thank god for it too because I'm going to be honest here like I was not super jazzed to read Mansfield Park. I was curious, but I wasn't like really amped up for it. But um, what's great about these read-alongs is that I just start feeding off the energy of like mm-hmm. everyone else. Yeah. And so um, it got had me like really excited. And then of course the guests really like just added to that. So, Well, for me, it really started when we were doing the Wives and Daughters read-along. And I was like, mm-hmm. oh, you know, I'm seeing so many things that remind me of it, but I had just hadn't read it in such a long time that it was really hard to pick out what those were. And I know that you're mm-hmm. going to be pulling out some of those a little bit later. So before we get to the Wives and Daughters versus Mansfield Park mega match, we've mm-hmm. got some listener comments. Yes, let's get on into it. all sorts of things. So first up, we've got some comments on Lover's Vows. So as we know, Mansfield Park has this really, I really like it. Like the story, the whole thing surrounding the family theatrical, uh, the build up to it, them discussing what play they're going to do, rehearsing, like making the sets, all of it. I think it really drives the story forward. And I just, I think it's some of like Austin's best writing is this Mm storyline. And we know that Austin was herself very familiar with theatricals she took part in family ones of her own with her cousins and friends from the neighborhood so I think she's probably drawing from a lot of personal experience in this which is why it's yeah. so vivid and um, it came up a lot in the discussions lover's vows why it was that play was it relevant to the audiences of the time and so there was loads of discussion about it and here's just a couple of maybe interesting points from our listeners that we found Got a few here. Okay. So let's kick it off with Mary P. We have so many Marys in this group, you guys. <laughs> Too many. No more Marys. So many Marys. Sorry, this is <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, that should be one of our uh, questions when you join the Facebook group. Is your name <laughs> is Mary? Your name Mary. We're not Pick sure. We're full up on Marys. Yeah. <laughs> so Mary P said, what strikes me besides both Agatha and Mariah being outcasts, interesting i like that um is the fact that frederick played by henry swears to stand by and avenge the wrong done to his mother no matter what the personal consequences are to himself while henry of course 
is all like, see you later. That was fun, Mariah. Bye bye. So yeah, he does just totally ghost on Mariah. But of course, in the play, within the book, his character is supposed to be steadfast. I wonder if that's like Henry as well. He plays a role, doesn't he? And I think Mm -hmm. that's like one of the tragedies about Henry is that I think he's playing himself by doing that. Because he puts on the role of Frederick and he's like, I'm going to do this. And then he puts on the role of like being a lover to Mariah, doesn't follow through on that. And then when he's trying to woo Fanny, he's like a different person. It's like a different character. Again, he has all of these faces and all of these masks and we really should see it coming like from this point. Henry is a player. Yes. In a play. Yes. (laughs) In a play. (laughs) Uh, In a book. Uh, Another great comment was, um, Mary says, I just noticed the violence of Tom's language when he demands she play the cottager's wife. As I shall be the cottager, I'll put you in and push you about. The way the others demand she acts in the play, it's almost like an ambush, as if she's property. And it's, I think that again, it's just throwaway dialogue, you'd think. But, you know, Tom is saying like, you'll be in the play, I'm going to manoeuvre you. It's almost like she's Mm -hmm. a a chess piece, you know, and it's, it's very physical. And I think you don't get a lot of, physical language towards the heroines you know like it's yes hands on them and fanny like it's what i don't know what it is about fanny but people talk to her like that or in front mm-hmm. of her like that uh, i know that helena kelly talks about the scene in her book when fanny's father is saying about how he would beat mariah and this actually reminds me of that but in like a lower key way you know it's like mm-hmm this contact that I just think is maybe not in some of her other novels. So it's not scary, but it's it's a li- it's like threatening, isn't it? It's like a presence. Yeah. It's like, I'm just gonna, you have no agency here. I'm just gonna move you around whether or well, not you want to. I think what you said there, um, keyword maneuvering, and I'm totally gonna butcher this. Like, I'm so sorry, guys. I had this marked and then I lost my place or my daughter lost my place in my book. But um, maneuvering, was like a very specific word choice by Austin in Mansfield Park with regards to Mary. And um, in that uh, Mansfield Park annotated edition by Deidre Shauna Lynch that we have, um, there is a note in there where she talks about Austin, like specifically using the word maneuver instead of something like manipulate, which is a bit stronger. And like maneuver was like a new French word. So it's a very specific word choice by her. Is it a word that Mary says or is it a word used about Mary? Oh, I can't remember, Hannah. I wish I could find the note. I was Sorry. desperately trying to find it. <laughs> I know. Because I was like, ooh, I like it. It's not super relevant. We made it relevant. I, we got there. Yeah, I just, it. it's interesting to me because I think, you know, in the wives and daughters uh, read along, I use the word manipulate specifically with Cynthia quite a few times. And I think a lot of people felt that that was too strong. So mm-hmm. maybe maneuvering is, yeah. The, yeah. is no, the right I word. I like that, yeah. Uh, so then back on Love is Vows, um, Rachel P made this point. So the character Agatha being a fallen woman may be okay if risque entertainment for young ladies going to the theatre, but that does not make it an appropriate role for an unmarried daughter of a baronet and to a lesser extent the same goes for Amelia with her taking the lead in the courtship of Anholt. and then I've bolded this what might be okay for an actress might not be okay for a lady and I think it's really interesting again with the theatrical it's like it is it is shocking like the subject matter that 
you know, it's one thing to go and see something, but then to be acting it out yourself is a different thing. And like, you could mm-hmm. be a fan of actresses, you could be a fan of theatre, but Julia and Mariah, they're not, it's a different time. They're not aspiring to be actresses. That's not, they're right. not going to have a career. So I think that it's important to remember that, you know, what might be okay for an actress might not be okay for a lady. So even the play isn't the issue. It's them doing the play and just everything that, you know, it's kind of tenfold then, like their behavior. That's a really good point too, because I I remember George saying um, in our episode with him and Devaney, that uh, his students really struggle with that, like trying to get their head around, like what is, what's the problem here? Because it does seem to our modern eyes as like kind of wholesome, right? These kids are just hanging out. They have nothing to do. Especially like, when let's you put know, on a play. Especially when you know Austin did it herself. So then you're like, is she criticizing right. it? Like, is it, like, is it, is this tongue in cheek? Is it like, a problem? What's the, yeah. yeah, what is this? Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. So you might remember that we discussed the chronology of Austin writing Mansfield Park and the time that it was set in. Sarah Rose, Sarah, you're going to have to remind us, Sarah or Rose or Sarah Rose. Thank you, darling. Um, So Sarah Rose added some very helpful um, info to the group to help sort of contextualize Austin's decision making. So here she said, um, regarding Crab's tales, so... So Crab's Tales was in the book, but it was uh, potentially, it was with the two timelines. There's the timeline that's based mm-hmm. on the uh, the dates because of the, what do you call it when it's a book of? The almanac. The almanac. So there's an almanac that mm-hmm. confirms like a date in the book means that it must have been during this time period, which kind of gives mm-hmm. you one context. Pre-abolition? I'm trying to remember your history. And then the other one. Yeah. Uh, based on the inclusion of Crab's Tales, which hadn't been published at the time of that kind of timeline, kind of sets it then in like a slightly different historical context, right? So you've got these two facts. We've got the date in the book and then we've got this quote. And these are the two points that people kind of go between when they're trying to date the book. And we weren't Mm -hmm. sure, we were ambiguous. And so this helps clear that up. But you have to go back and listen to that episode. Yeah, you do. Because that was Um, a terrible (laughs) job. Well, here, this might help a little bit. Um, I will say that there is an article that we cited in our um, episode with Trisha Matthew that is called The Chronology of Mansfield Park by J.A. Downey, I believe. It is a free to read article, so you can go ahead and do a search on that and download it. Um, Also, in that annotated Mansfield Park edition, There is a really, really long note on this. I am not going to read it because it is pages long, but. She's getting the book. She's getting the book book I know. And it's huge too, right? (laughs) So basically the timeline will kind of like help you determine exactly what Sir Thomas is doing in Antigua. So basically is his aim to quell rebellion, which we've talked a little bit about in our Facebook group. Um, is his aim to reassert his property rights over human chattel? Or is he there actually maybe with like reformist motives? Yes. So that those are, it's all slavery related, but it's just like, what exactly is he there to do? And that's what, um, that's what the timeline will just sort of help you establish. The book can kind of be read in all of those ways, to be honest. 
Again, I must refer you to that annotated edition because um, it's excellent. It's excellent. And Lynch has a very excellent response to that. But back to Sarah Rose's note, um, which I thought was really interesting. So she said regarding Crab's Tales, it's worth noting that Austin did perhaps get that stuff wrong from time to time. In Sense and Sensibility, she mentions Walter Scott, first published as a poet in 1802 and not widely read in England till 1805. But she also has Colonel Brandon's presumably English sister living in Avignon. I probably butchered that. Avignon. Sorry. It's prob- Avignon. French. <laughs> Which probably wouldn't have been possible after the war began in 1793. My understanding, and please correct me if I'm getting this wrong, is that scholars think that Avignon was accidentally left in from the initial 1790s draft while the Scott stuff was added to give it a modern flair before the 1811 publication. I will say as well that kind of later on in that thread, uh, Sarah slash Rose did go on to say, um, just question, you know, at some point Austin with stuff like this is going to be having that conversation with herself. Like, is it important that these dates line up Mm -hmm. or is it important what I'm putting in? And, you know, yes. And I think if it does, it doesn't matter either way, does it? either it's a mistake or you know it's it's in there she wanted it in there and Mm -hmm. is the message or the subtext more important and I would say yeah probably and so yeah it could it could be either just an easy mistake or just her saying like I'm gonna stick it in I'm just gonna keep it in hey I mean um I love stuff like this puzzles yeah, it's a puzzle, but also, like, I mean, writing is hard. Keeping track of dates is hard. I think you and I know this very well with some of the writing that we've been doing lately. And um, how hard was it before, like, Google or, um, you know, the Finder? Hey, listen, Shortcut? you know, they say Good that uh, George R. R. Martin regretted making the wall so big in Game of Thrones. Uh, well, you know what? Haven't read it or watched it, so... I can't tell if oh, the video is frozen or if you're just angry. No. <laughs> oh no, it had frozen. It froze. It froze. And then, <laughs> did you did you say anything? I just said, haven't read it, haven't watched it. Oh, it was just silence and you were just staring at me, like angrily. <laughs> <laughs> that was awful. That was so tense. Game of Thrones. Uh, you know, I like to bring it back every now and then. Okay, and as you know, we talked a lot about Fanny as the moral center. And I have to say, I loved this comment from Helen S, uh, which highlights maybe like an early sign of this moral center being off kilter way earlier. So I was complaining that um, Austin maybe didn't do enough to make us question Fanny as the moral center earlier in the book. Mm -hmm. And then this, this comment just was like, I am just probably not smart enough to see those points where she's flagging it, right? Mm -hmm. So Helen's comment is, I'm thinking about the visit to I'm thinking about the visit to Southerton when they're in the chapel and Fanny's romanticizing the idea of family prayers. She's seeing religion, especially the established church, as this pure form of good. If Fanny is the moral censor of the book, then maybe this is about recalling a time when the Church of England wasn't complicit in slavery. But Mary's joke that most people would have found it an awful drag and were there under duress, she puts the moral centre of kilter, 
Uh, Jane Austen isn't allowing us the reader, the high-minded nostalgia she gives to Fanny. She is instead forcing us to consider that Fanny's perspective might be naive and incomplete. Fanny doesn't share this doubt or realisation. Instead, she's given the space to dismiss Mary's jokes as merely worldly shallowness, and so are we. Mm -hmm. But perhaps Mary's shallowness reflects a lack of true depth in Fanny's understanding. Yes. Yes. Beautiful comment. Great. I think um, this is why this book is so hard to get around and requires maybe several readings for the modern reader um, because it is a push and pull, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I don't think there's like a straightforward message. I don't think there's one character giving you like the full truth here, right? I think it's, there's a lot of give and take in this book. And it actually um, made me think about, I'm sorry, I'm going to bring it up again. It's just, it's going to be like the new Harriet Beecher Stowe, like take a shot every time I say, um, the annotated edition of Mansfield Park. I'm going to down a <laughs> bottle was... of vodka. It's, it's <laughs> happening. So there is this conversation in volume two, chapter seven, where uh, Sir Thomas and um, Edmund are sort of discussing. Well, he's saying it's it's a shame that Edmund has to like go away to his new parish, right? He needs to live, you know, where he's going to work. And um, here's the note. So praising clergymen who reside among their parishioners, Sir Thomas engages in a topical issue dear to evangelical reformers of the Anglican Church. There is some ethical inconsistency in his position, given the fact that he himself is an absentee landlord where his Antigua property is concerned. As Austin knew from Thomas Clarkson's History of the Abolition of the Slave Trade, Abolitionists like William Wilberforce argue that non-residents of West Indian planters left their slaves on their plantations more vulnerable to oppression at the hands of brutal overseers. The slave owners would surely have resented their brutality. It was said um, had they been there to witness it. So I kind of like how, again, like people are everyone like in this book is hypocritical. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think if there is a running theme, hypocrisy has got to be up on the list of options for that right we uh also of course can't do a recap of any conversation of mansfield park without talking about the true protagonist of our read-along if not the novel okay so Mm. i know she's not the main character of the book but she is the main character of my heart lauren of my heart mary crawford of course the people's princess she really did uh, light up our comments. Uh, Nev said that even though she says and does some shocking things, I think it's mostly out of ignorance. The passage where she talks to Fanny of marriages of her wealthy friends, uh, Lady Stornaway and Mrs. Fraser, is really telling. She genuinely seems surprised that they aren't happy in their marriages for the most part. She lacks Fanny's clear moral thinking and is very obvious that she has never been taught to think in such a way. At that point in the book, I genuinely felt sorry for her. She seemed destined to make an equally poor choice in marriage, but there are hints that maybe she has grown enough to avoid that. I I actually do think maybe Mary might avoid that. I think, yeah, I think definitely by the time you get the last line about Mary, Austin's kind of Mm -hmm. just letting you know, like, she's learned. I mean... This is what yeah. I was saying um, in our kind of final episode was just that, like, I think unlike a lot of the characters, Mary is 
character growth is plotted out for you in that epilogue Mm -hmm. and you don't get that with like a lot of the others like her and Julia I think are the ones that are most fortunate in escaping yeah everyone else is stuck there um I also you know speaking about things that uh unsatisfying like the ending uh something that i was never really able to reconcile with mary was just when she's talking to fanny about mariah and henry and you're like oh she's grown so much and then the conversation that she has with fanny is always kind of brought up as that well she hasn't grown up that much because she's totally fine with henry and mariah running off together and then him jilting her Mm -hmm. and she doesn't think it's a problem but then joy framed it in this way and i just was like yes excellent So she said, I think it's interesting that although Edmund is entirely shocked by Mary's plan to have Henry marry Mariah, Mary is the only one who suggests that Henry face any consequences whatsoever for his actions. At least under her plan, Mariah and Henry would have been more or less, uh, would be more equally treated by society. They wouldn't be accepted everywhere, but with large, expensive parties, they could gather something of a social circle around themselves. In the end, it is only Mariah who is punished, while Henry faces no consequences at all, which I realise is normal for the time. Right. And I was just like, yes. Yeah. Excellent. And like, That's Mary, a good point. you know, you're not, maybe you don't agree. I, I think like, Mary is never going to have been written as a character who would spell that out and be like okay guys Mm -hmm. sit down I'm going to tell you about what's going to happen you know it's not Mm -hmm. but that's like a very realistic ending they would have been it would have become normalized like Mary Mary spends all of that time talking about her friends she's like it's just a flirtation like people will get over it Mary should know Mm -hmm. the Mansfield Park lot they've got no insight into that world right at all so totally. at least if Henry had married her, her reputation isn't saved, but she's not having to live with Mrs. Norris without any right. prospects of getting married, no independence ever again. So I'm not saying it would have been a happy marriage, but yeah, I really like that point about them uh, at least kind of being equally treated by society because Henry really does mm-hmm. get off scot-free with it. Yeah, he does. And um. It makes sense, too, that she would suggest it as well. I mean, Henry is her brother. And I know you brought this up in um, our episode where we talked about Mary. But yeah, like, I mean, it makes sense that she would try to salvage the situation, I think, from all angles, right? Mm -hmm. She wants to stay in good with the family. Like, she wants to protect her brother. Um, I don't think it's, like, a super shocking suggestion. Yeah. No. So one thing that I really like about Mansfield Park is that it references other writers, books, and the act of reading quite a bit. So it's kind of like uh, Northanger Abbey in that way. And spoiler alert, later on in the season, we're going to talk about this because I find it fascinating. But what I love about Northanger Abbey and Mansfield Park is that if you actually go out and read like the text that Austin is mentioning, um, she's like dropping you little breadcrumbs, dropping little clues. Like... It brings another level of enjoyment to the, you know, to the book. I preferred your first draft of that note, which was like, Lizzie isn't the best read Austin heroine. And I know you deleted it, but I saw it and I laughed. (laughs) (laughs) I thought I was like, she will like this. That's more Well, that was because I was like, I was like, oh, Fanny Price is the best yeah. Is the most well-read heroine. And then I go, well, wait a minute, Catherine Moreland is pretty well read. I mean, 
I think I would say probably she... um it would probably go Fanny Anne Catherine Lizzie. I would might even put Marianne Dashwood over Lizzie. Wow. Because Marianne Dashwood talks about the Shakespearean sonnets, right? Yeah, she does. Yeah. What can I say? One day we'll do the official ranking on this. But (laughs) I think Fanny is um, pretty high up on the list. But I think it's like between her and Catherine. Yeah. But back back to the listener comments, which is not about ranking these characters. That's just what we like to do in our spare time. So Sarah I pulled out this quote from Mansfield Park uh, saying, I noticed for the first time that Austin discusses the circulating library in Mansfield Park. Fanny found it impossible not to try for books again. There were none in her father's house, but wealth is luxurious and daring and some of hers found its way to a circulating library. She became a subscriber, amazed at being anything in proprier persona amazed at her own doings in every way to be a renter a chooser of books a chooser of books a privileged position i love that line like wealth is luxurious and daring as well because it like i've just had a thought okay wealth is luxurious Mm -hmm. and daring fanny's never been wealthy but who has been wealthy mary crawford (laughs) Well, yeah, she's yeah. luxurious and daring. Like maybe if Fanny kept on going in life as like this independent woman, she would be luxurious and daring more often. <laughs> luxurious and daring. The new Armani campaign for spring 2020. <laughs> Rachel P said that um, Edmund formed her taste in reading and part of her motivation subscribing to the library is so she can do the same for Susan. One thing I noticed in this reading was how she felt um, so daring taking the initiative and how for the first time she sees herself as able to act independently. She isn't the low man on the totem pole in Portsmouth, and this empowers her in a new way. Sir Thomas had no idea that Portsmouth could give her more autonomy. She chooses biographies and other nonfiction for Susan at the library, not just novels like um, <coughs> Catherine Morland. <laughs> Much like uh, Anne's suggestions for Benwick. So yeah, I do like this. I like this um, because Fanny is passing down the knowledge, right? She's handing it down to Susan. Mm -hmm. I think that's really important. And as Valentina points out, uh, so Valentina B said, I also like it because Edmund has always guided her taste in books Uh, And that Fanny choosing for herself gives me some hope for her future independence. So I do like that Fanny's kind of following the example of sharing that knowledge. But I will say I do have the opposite reaction. So I see um, Fanny kind of taking this daring step into subscribing to a circulating library, sharing knowledge. It's very active. It's one of the few Mm -hmm. passive things. one of the few non-passive things that I think we really get from Fanny, right? And the implication for me is that that's going to stop when she marries Edmund because she's going back Mm -hmm. to the guy that's chosen the books that she reads. And again, it just plays into the unsatisfying ending. We don't see their relationship. We see none of it. So there is nothing to say that that isn't the relationship that they're going to slide back into of the person 
suggesting the books and her passively reading them instead of luxurious daring you know being a chooser or renter of her own books and like maybe she will because she'll be a wife and she'll have an income and a household but we don't know we don't know because Jane Austen doesn't tell us yeah it's it's very unsatisfying because I mean when she goes to Portsmouth it does feel like the novel is progressing or moving in a different direction or Fanny is sort of growing up and she's you know gaining more autonomy and then she goes back to Mansfield Park it's like two steps forward ten steps back I wish she'd just like kidnapped the circulating library and driven off into the distance into the sunset (laughs) and it just ends with her starting a library of her own. Oh, great book. A library of her own. (laughs) (laughs) Due out in 2021 by Hannah Chapman. A Fanny Price fan fiction, but the word fan is crossed out. (laughs) So now on to the main event. Dun-da-da-dun. Let's do Mansfield Park versus Wives and Daughters. Just a few thoughts. Let's get it started with uh, Fanny versus Molly. A lot of similarities between these characters. Yeah, I think this is one of the things that first kicked it off during the Wives and Daughters read-alongs, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. It was the fa- it was the Fanny Mary and Molly Cynthia relationships. And so it's definitely like the two young girls in both novels that kind of brought it out, I think, initially for a lot of us when we were reading it. So both Fanny and Molly sort of occupy these unique roles within the families. I mean, it's not Molly's family, but she is sort of the companion to Mrs. Hamley, much in the same way that, you know, Fanny is there in Mm -hmm. that role. And um, yeah, they're sort of like these adopted daughter servants. Yes. That's what I'm going to say. And um, interestingly... Both fathers are very afraid that their sons will fall in love with them. I, I forgot that this does actually also happen in Wives and Daughters as well. They're sort of nervous. Mm-hmm. That... The squire is very worried about it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He really doesn't want the boys to be at home when, when Molly is there. Yeah. He's nervous that they're going to uh, fall in love with this girl who is below their station. But then, of course, eventually both Fanny and Molly become like indispensable members of the family. Yeah. And both, you know, Sir Thomas and the squire are are fine with it. They are happy with it. Um, both ladies, of course, are involved in a love triangle. Mm-hmm. And they are in love with dudes who have like sister zoned them. Yeah. <laughs> which I think is worse than friend zoned, honestly. I feel like I got sister zoned a lot oh, when yeah. I was a teenager and, you know, because like I wasn't cool enough to be a friend. That's the thing. Oh, no. It was so familial. Oh, <laughs> you're just like my pal, my little sister, Hannah. Yeah. Well, yeah, most people are like my my fake mum or Granny Hanny. Oh. Yeah, Granny Hanny. Got wow. that one a lot. Um, I also think this is why that Mansfield Park would be like a great high school adaptation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sort of like 10 things I hate about you style. Okay. So another big theme in Mansfield Park and Wives and Daughters is the plight of the second son. So we have both Roger and Edmund, who are totally shit out of luck when it comes to the estate and money. And they both have to sort of make their own way. Um, Of course, Roger becomes this like 
esteemed Darwinian figure and um, Edmund, you know, goes the way of the clergy. But both of them, um, they act as teachers to both Molly and Fanny. Mm-hmm. So just kind of thinking about what we were talking about earlier with uh, reading. Rec- yeah, they both recommend reading, don't they? Because yes. Molly, uh, Mrs. Gibson criticizes Molly for reading stuff that Roger has recommended and then wants Cynthia to improve her reading because she wants to. Yeah. Um, I was actually talking a little bit to Emma P about this and she had a great comment. She said that Second Sons is a great emerging trope and there's some great sense versus sensibility in there too. Roger and Edmund are practical to one extent or another. Both of them are preachers. The romantics, Osborne and Crawford, are comparatively unsuccessful. So, yeah, mm-hmm. I could definitely do a lot of Osborne um, comparisons with Tom. Yeah, I was going to... Tom was not a Crawford, though. No, he's not. But you could yeah, actually do a but, Tom. Yeah, I was yeah. going to say, yeah, Tom Tom is the older brother definitely works in, in that light, you know. Like, he's, mm-hmm. he's interested in the theatre. He's interested in having fun and living a life. I mean, it's not like a perfect analogy, but no. it's not, um, managing the estate is not what he's most interested in. Um, of course, I think there was some discussion in our Facebook group. You could have um, that comparison between our villains, Mrs. Norris and Mrs. Gibson. Um, I just want to say, I feel like these are the two strongest villains and any of our read-alongs, these yeah, villains agreed. really like upset everyone deeply. Well, they're so realistic. Wait, well, Mrs. Gibson's realistic. Mrs. Norris yeah. is a Aunt Norris is a caricature. Yeah, you feel like you want to expand on that a little bit. Well, I mean, so I was saying, I think I said it in our Mansfield Park episodes. Um, I just find that I never quite get to the root of why with mrs Mm -hmm. norris uh with aunt norris like i get i get what she is i get the purpose or the point of what she does to fanny i understand that she wants to make a distinction or that she wants to do this or that she wants to do that but why she wants to do it or why it's of a benefit to her and like even even going so far as like I just don't understand her motivations for anything, honestly, because when she suggests it, it's her idea at the very start. I don't think she's worried about Fanny supplanting her in importance or usefulness because I honestly don't think she has a high enough regard of Fanny to think that that could happen. Mm -hmm. So it just, and it is just constant. And I just don't, like with Mrs. Gibson, I feel like you get so much of the why and you get so much to make you understand what is happening in her head. And I just don't think you have that with Aunt Norris. And I think that it's, you know, Aunt Norris is a difficult one because uh, it just feels very flat sometimes. You know, like I like the dialogue. I I think she's funny at times, but I don't know that she is like successfully written hmm you know um yeah. i know uh that people i think one of the comparisons and your note says uh about them being social climbers as well but i don't even think that i think aunt norris is not a social climber i think she's someone that wants to benefit from the society around them so it's not about her personally social climbing mm-hmm. it's about the people that she has access to social climbing or maintaining their status in society because mm-hmm. she benefits from them so it's like a very passive she's like a leech 
Yeah. Like, you know, one of those plants that grows on the tree. So they want it wants the tree to be healthy and strong so that it can survive. But it's not trying to be a tree itself. Whereas yeah. I think Mrs. Gibson is all about social climbing. Right. I think that was very good, Hannah. Thank you. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't sure. I couldn't remember if the stuff about Mrs. Norris had really made it in or if we had really expanded on it. Yeah, I just felt it just felt. It felt constant. I didn't really understand where it was always coming from. Well, I think that too, like villains always work best if you do have that understanding, if you Mm -hmm. do have like a little bit um, more background on them or sympathy for them or empathy for them. Yeah, and you really get that with uh, Mrs. Gibson. And finally, Cynthia versus Mary, the anti-heroines of the book. The heroines. The heroines. Fine. The heroines. Thanks. Cynthia, the heroine mm. of Wives and Daughters? Come no. on. Boo. Can you sell it on both points? Yeah. <laughs> no, you're right. You're right. <laughs> you got me. All right. Okay. Well, in both novels, I think these gals are like uh, mirror images of the heroines, right? Mm-hmm. They both like have sort of similar upbringings, just sort of a little warped right you know like uh cynthia grows up without a father molly grows up without a mother you know their parents get together parent trap style and it all falls to shit no it's actually fine (laughs) ish the parent trap too it all falls to shit (laughs) and if you guys have any more sort of mansfield park wives and daughters comparisons oh Okay, go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> it's Sorry. not Mary and Cynthia related. But so I will say that um, something that kept coming up in the discussion, especially when we were talking about uh, Mansfield Park as an abolitionist text, mm-hmm. was the uh, what I would call like the surface level reading of the book. So the one mm-hmm. which is plot focused and it's relationship focused and like it's more character focused rather than the subtext or the quotes or what's happening in Antigua. You know, Mm -hmm. the stuff that we've kind of been arguing is maybe more obvious or should be considered about, uh, thought about more. Um, Mm -hmm. I think that Wives and Daughters is a more successful attempt at telling that story than Mansfield Park is. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one of the things that uh, we are reacting to maybe. So there are those similarities. I think the characters are more sympathetic. They aren't necessarily nicer people. Right but they are more fleshed out. Um, we would have had more opportunity to see Molly and... Um, Roger. Ro- uh, Roger, Edmund. <laughs> we would have had more opportunity to see Molly and Roger's relationship form uh, mm-hmm. had Gaskell finished the book, yeah. uh, but she doesn't. And so I think that Mansfield Park is the most successful version of Mansfield Park that we have. But I think that Wives and Daughters is the most successful version of this one part of Mansfield Park that we have. (laughs) Does that make sense? I don't think Wives and Daughters is a remake of Mansfield Park. No. Because Mansfield Park is about more than Wives and Daughters is about. It's it's like. It's the cake. It's the frosting. Mansfield, Mansfield Park is a cake and it has frosting. And the frosting is great, but there's cake and also jam. And then Wives oh, wow. and Daughters is 
just you've just eaten the frosting because you're gluten intolerant. Wow. Yes, yes. that is. Wow, guys, amazing. Quote Hannah K. Chapman in your dissertations, please. <laughs> Jack, Jack is lending me a book on like uh, how to talk more like a logical person. And one of the chapters is just on analogies. And I just know that don't, I'm going to, I just know I'm going to struggle with it. Don't pay any attention to it, please. You've made a career out of your analogies. <laughs> what does this book know? <laughs> That's what I say. Well, guys, I mean, if you have thoughts on Wives and Daughters and Mansfield Park, why don't you leave those in the comments for this very episode? We can continue this discussion in our Facebook group. And but after that, we can't talk about Mansfield Park ever again. Ever again. We need a break from it. (laughs) We really had to psych ourselves up for this episode, guys. Spent. Yeah, we're done. It's over. Um, We have other books to talk about, don't we, Hannah? Oh, we do. Thank goodness. Um, So at the end of this month, we're going to be discussing Eliza Hayward with Dr. Glynis Ridley, who we met in Kentucky and who is excellent. Yes. Excellente. Yes, she is. She's just very good no hyperbole needed uh we're also going to be talking about hayward's phantomina or love in a maze now i can't tell if that's two titles or if lauren just hasn't picked which book we're reading no it's the same book um it's just like hayward couldn't decide which title she liked better so she's like you can refer to this as phantomina or love in a maze i like phantomina it sounds like so it sounds like a raccoon wearing a mask (laughs) Absolutely. I agree. I think it's bad. It's very hot in this room. I think <laughs> I have heat stroke. Oh, dear. Well, um, so this story is only 30 pages long. It is available for free on Project Gutenberg. So it will be really easy to get hold of. And we will, of course, uh, post a link and a discussion thread in the Facebook group. And then in October... We have picked one of Elizabeth Gaskell's gothic tales to celebrate the spookiest month of the year. Um, We will be reading The Old Nurse's Story, and this can also be found on Project Gutenberg and in Elizabeth Gaskell's gothic tales collection, which was published by Penguin. Um, I know a lot of you guys out there have it. I have seen your bookstagrams. So pull that one down off your shelf. Read the old nurse's tale. I want to read the witch. Um, we can talk about the witch too if you want. If you want to read more than one, yeah, I'm I fine with read, that. I want to read the witch badly because I read a plot description and I was like spooky and also yeah. historical fiction. Well, you and I can talk about the witch. Okay, good. Thanks. It's set in Salem. And if more people want to talk about the witch, then yeah, just do that on our Facebook group. Uh, I will say the old nurse's tale or the old nurse's story, it's only like 25, 30 pages too. So it's also very short. Um, So if you wanted to read more of Gaskell's like spooky tales and talk about them in our Facebook group, you are more than welcome. Should people read these spooky stories in the daytime or uh, right before bed? Like how scary are they? Right before bed, come on. (laughs) I don't want to do that. Come on. 
You can find us as always on Instagram and Twitter at Bonnets at Dawn. You can email us bonnets at dawn at gmail.com. Only photos of dogs, please. Thank you. Uh, you mm-hmm. can join our Facebook group and join our lively discussion by searching Bonnets at Dawn and answering the questions just to prove that you're not a robot. Because some of you listen, but then you don't answer the questions. And I have to wonder if you're sick of hearing my voice by the end of the episode and you just hit pause right about now. Mm-hmm.